Welcome to Amplify. Music there from Fergus Johnson. It's Planksty for Flute and Tape, performed by our guest this week, Emma Coulthart. And we'll also hear from Fergus later in the episode about this piece. This is episode 29. Hello, Yvonne. Hi, Jonathan. How's it going? Very well, thanks. So this week we feature a conversation with flautist Emma Coulthart about her work. And Yvonne, Emma has been very active performing and commissioning works by Irish composers over the past two years, hasn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Very active. And, uh, you know, as we'll hear from the composers in the podcast and we hear from Emma herself, I mean, she's just so enthusiastic and committed and passionate to her playing and to, as you say, performing and commissioning works by composers from Ireland. And and this enthusiasm, you know, it's really infectious. Um, Anytime she's visited us here at the centre, it's been a real joyous occasion and it was a great pleasure for us and CMC to support Emma's St. Patrick's Day event in Cardiff in Wales in March 2019 when our colleague Linda travelled over to the event and interviewed the composers and Emma during the performance. I think for Emma bringing together her Irish musical world and her Welsh musical world was particularly special you know on that St Patrick's Day and you know she's commissioned and worked and collaborated with so many composers we'll, we'll hear from them some of them in the podcast Paul Hayes, Fergus Johnson, Gronya Mulvey, Jen Kirby, Anna Murray and I know she's working with Siobhan Cleary on a new work and Ben Dwyer and her collaborate regularly as well and um, I think she's very generous as a collaborator I mean that's the the kind of impression that I get and she doesn't do things by half as well you know she's come back to playing in the middle of her life she's made this decision uh, to commit to contemporary music and now she's one of these amazing ambassadors and organizing you know tirelessly organizing concerts abroad where you know she can disseminate and showcase uh, works by Irish composers I mean she's had a concert in Bulgaria and in Japan and she has an online concert coming up on the 30th of November it's called For the Birds A Flautist's Avery what a great title and uh, we'll have a, a selection of works in that online performance by composers from Ireland so She's an incredibly busy, enthusiastic, generous, um, musical person. Hello. We have liftoff. Yes, we do. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah. I've been so let's have a listen to my conversation with Emma now. During our chat, you'll also hear from two of the composers whom Emma has collaborated with, Paul Hayes and Fergus Johnson. I'm Emma Coulthard. I'm a flautist. I specialise in contemporary music, almost exclusively Irish contemporary music. I was born in Wales to parents of Irish descent. So we moved to Ireland when I was three and I was lucky enough to go to the Royal Irish Academy of Music and to Trinity College. 
I moved back to the UK in about 1998-99 and since then really have been trying to promote Irish music abroad, um, Irish music in the contemporary music sense. I always had an interest in contemporary music. I would have known John Buckley when I was quite young. I think I started playing Buckley when I was about 16 and I had master classes at Robert Dick. It really excited me to have that side of musicianship that wasn't just playing the fashion, what I call 4A in a Laura Ashley dress. <laughs> so I had a love of it then and I met Paul Hayes. He was a key figure early on. I did a few pieces with him and again, just expanding that idea where you could play the flute, you could speak, you could scream. I think I had to dance at one point. I did new music, new dance with him. And I worked with Donal Hurley, Martin O'Leary, Michael Houlihan, because word got round that as a performer, I was the type of person that would just try anything. I had no desire to just play the 4A fantasy faster than the next person. <laughs> I gave the premiere of Burren in the University of Nottingham, the UK premiere, in 1999. And then I did what a lot of people do, took a little time out to have a little one. And then a couple of years ago, there was a big change in my life and I found myself on my own with a teenage son and trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, having taken a day job in music education and kept up the playing, but not really with any sense of direction. When things were a bit rough, my mum and I came over for a weekend to cheer ourselves up. We were in the John Field room and looked up the interval and there was a statue called Girl with Flute that I modelled for when I was a student. The joke is there's a statue to me in my hometown already. <laughs> but I looked at that statue and I remembered who I was when I modelled for that in the early 90s. And I was working with Paul at the time. So I thought, well, I want to be who I was when I did that. I want to imagine what Girl with Flute would be playing now. And I thought, well, I really want to come back, but I want to come back with something to say. I want every note I play to be a note I've chosen to play and every piece to be a piece I've chosen to play. came back over and sat in with Susan Brodigan and looked through all your archives in the CMC, contacted any composers I'd worked with before. I scared myself out of my wits. I took on a brutally difficult programme, hired David Adams, hired the, the Wells Millennium Centre, got people in, got a BBC sound engineer and went for it. And over the last two years now, I've had a lot of performances. I've been to Bulgaria, been to Tokyo to play with Paul. I think I've commissioned about 10 new pieces and finally got an Irish Arts Council commission, which meant a lot because being um, Welsh-born, I was never entitled to anything when I lived in Ireland. So it was a matter of reconnecting. And the internet has been a wonderful thing, hasn't it? And, and Facebook and being able to contact people. The biggest break I had with Paul Hayes, I think it was 1992, Paul was chosen to write for the Pre-Italia um, competition. He wrote a piece called Mass Production, 
huge piece, full symphony orchestra. I was actually engaged as a solo soprano because I was singing Queen of the Night at the time in the academy, but only because I could get the really high notes, not because I was any good. We asked Paul Hayes for some thoughts on on these pieces and working with you. So um, let's have a listen to that now. I had worked with Emma Coulthard the summer before on a dance drama piece, The Wounds of Art, commissioned by Adrian Brown. So when I was commissioned by RTE to do a large-scale work for orchestra, choir and soloists, I suggested to Jerome de Bromhead that we use Emma Coulthard for the soprano part. Jennifer Walsh was studying trumpet at the time, and I knew she was also open to new ideas. Emma Coulthard has been such an inspiration to me. She is so enthusiastic. The excitement she generates just rubs off on you. She instills a sense of wonder into everything she does. I always intended mass production to have a still centre, so I just used Emma's voice and Jennifer Watch's trumpet. We did several takes, doing each phrase separately. Emma and Jenny were endlessly patient as I asked them once again on the speakover mic just one more time. For the most recent pieces I wrote for Emma on the story of Echo, I deal with Echo as a self-effacing voice. Currently I'm working on a music theatre piece for Emma, inspired by Samuel Beckett's Footfalls. For this piece, Emma sings, plays and dances, but all in the shadows. You know, you hear about a boxer making a comeback or something like that and and, and going for it. Did it feel like that to you that you were and how, I guess, how scared or intimidated were you by that whole idea of putting yourself out there again and sort of reconnecting with that side of you 20 years ago. It was mildly terrifying in some ways. I've always loved performing, so I I don't mind getting on stage. It's more that I wanted to be good enough for the composers. When you're working with living composers, there was always that fear that you won't be good enough to get the piece across to the level they would like. The approach I took was to take on pieces that were so hard that I had to be very very good to be able to play them at all and it made me practice I never practiced so hard in my life and also I felt as Oscar Wilde might put it I was a flautist of no reputation because it had been quite a gap no one could look and say well we haven't heard of her or we don't know who she is and not to sound derogatory but doing it outside Ireland first I think was a good idea 
because Ireland was a bit of a goldfish bowl. Everyone knows everybody. So I had the freedom here of nobody knew who I was. Nobody cared whether I'd won the fesh or not. They were curious. There was an audience that were interested. I put myself out there, so I invited composers to my rehearsals. So I invited John and invited Fergus and faced it. What is a really positive thing is the energy and the enthusiasm you get from composers because they're just so pleased you care about their music. That carries you along and gives you feedback on your playing that you wouldn't get in any other way. If you think about it, when you're learning an instrument, the feedback you get is usually from your instrumental teacher, which is all about learning the instrument. And you're quite limited to that. Whereas when you work with a composer, they're not interested in certain aspects of technique. They're interested in whether your arsenal of tools is, is bringing across what they want to say in the piece. So mm -hmm. sometimes you can underestimate yourself. And um, I think I did for a while. I, I kept thinking, you know, not good enough, not good enough, got to be perfect. And then I'd go and play and they'd go, wow, that was great. <laughs> When you're working with real people who are writing who are standing next to you, your main objective really is to share what they've done with people, to, to give voice to something you believe in. You forget about whether they think you're good enough to be standing on the stage or not. The composers think I am, so that's all that matters. It matters mm. more than anything else. When was that concert that you did in, in that initial concert that you got David Adams to play with you? And 2018, I think. So only two years ago? Yeah. Wow. So a lot has happened in those two years, hasn't it? <laughs> you know, these really corny books you read about your best life ever. And then they say, if you can't visualize what you want, then how are you going to get it? I visualized exactly what I want. And I've got back more than I saw in my head. I knew what music I wanted to play. I knew I had to work very hard. I made a decision to only play in nice places that, that were worth playing in. So never to present as an amateur, never to present as anything less. I, I think mm -hmm. it's the most deliberate thing I've ever done in my life. The trouble with the obsession with young musicians is that pressure of somebody's won a competition therefore we'll just book them for a load of gigs and when you're an old musician unless you have something particular to say it's quite hard to justify why would someone book you why would someone listen to you and I always say well would you want to hear an eight-year-old King Lear you wouldn't <laughs> and I would think that musicians and composers who are still doing it as you know at my age I'm not not ancient but um <laughs> in the middle sort of period must be doing it for a reason and might have something more interesting to say yeah, there is that kind of uh, obsession with youth and music, isn't there? It's whoever is the up and coming, you know, the rising star and finding the, the hottest young thing in in their 
you know, 20s and they get all the commissions and all the opportunities and then they're forgotten about in their 40s. I completely agree. And interestingly enough, I've seen the UK move away from that thinking in the time I've been here. So I've been here 20 years. That obsession with the youth and that sort of genius thing is, is unhelpful and unhealthy all round. And I've noticed now with funding things like PRS and so on, there's far less of an emphasis on what age you are and far more openness. And also, it sounds funny, but the age discrimination legislation in the workplace, I think, has filtered through. There are many composers who didn't say much until they were 50. It's nice to see that change, and um, hopefully that change is happening in Ireland as well. Quite a lot of the composers that I solidly champion are my contemporaries or people five, six years older than me that would have been at the top end of Trinity, what I refer to jokingly as the first Trinity school. They were in between two stools, so they weren't the sort of the Raymond Dean end of things where, and Paul and Donal, where that was all quite new and things were good. And this generation of marvellous composers, people like John McLaughlin, Kevin O'Connell, Martin O'Leary, that don't get performed now as much as they should and never I think got the credit for the level at which they were writing I think partly because they were born just before well they were in the in the scene just before things really took off and just after things had been quite good the sort of the the Malcolm in the middle you know (laughs) and um, it's a pity and of course a lot of composers of that generation are not the media savvy young ones we get now and I don't sound like a an old git, but <laughs> a lot of the time in terms of career now, it, the people who do well are the ones who can uh, use media very well, the ones that are good at marketing, the ones that look good and so on. There's a distortion and, and a dis, disproportionate advantage sometimes. And in in deep art, in real art, that shouldn't be the case. In the old days, you didn't have to be anything other than yourself. This whole kind of brand me is relatively new. And it's only been possible in the last 20 years anyway. You have to have integrity and you have to have a message. It's not the same as being a brand. Do you then see your role as an interpreter to be the facilitator for, uh, you know, for these composers? Is that what they, where that, where you feel that your, your role is or your, your calling, your musical calling uh, lies? To some degree, yes. I think getting that balance of representing the best of Irish flute music and flute writing wherever it comes from, and getting the balance of that it isn't all in the last 10 years and it isn't all experimental. Um, So getting a a fair representation. Rather than just promoting them, it's getting the balance in, whereas it isn't all the electronic stuff. There's a little bit of that, and I, I love working with young composers. It's fantastic. But it's not all there is. There's plenty of good music that hasn't had a voice. So, yes, it is nice to be able to bring it to the fore. One of the composers whom you've worked with in the last uh, number of years, and, and in fact, uh, quite recently, Ben Dwar, he wrote a piece, Hag, for you, which is inspired by Sheila Giggs. 
tell me about this piece and the, and the, I I guess that the kind of challenges that that posed for you as a performer and 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 an interpreter. A shade in the gig is is a carved figure of a woman, usually hag like, um, with exaggerated vulva, and they're often holding that open. As um, there are many theories about being a portal to another world. They often appeared on churches, and they were quite often desecrated or destroyed because they were seen as obscene. And a lot of Ben's work has to do with whether they really were what they want, what they were doing there, what the story was behind them. Hag is the most daring and extraordinary thing I've ever done on the flute. I'm speaking while I'm playing. I'm speaking in Irish. I'm swearing. I call it becoming Sheila. You you have to become the Sheila as a performer. And the thinking behind it is very much around capturing her anger at the, the patriarchy and the church. And the, there's a lot of weight behind it. And, and Sheila's witnessing what's happened and she's very angry. <laughs> The preparation for that kind of piece is totally different. You're not practising your scales. You get up on stage and you have to imagine that it isn't a flute, it isn't you. The flute's just like a nozzle. Um, You're like the icing bag. You just become Sheila and that happens to be the medium you choose to do it in. And Ben is playing as a duet partner with his bowed guitar, very, very sort of atmospheric, very um, caustic, very, very sort of aggressive. In some ways it's like um, we are taking apart the idea of flute and guitar people always think of the flute and guitar as a nice sweet little thing you know and we're going about as dark as you can get with that medium as a performer as a as a person it, it takes you completely away from everything that you knew before no When you put on a piece of contemporary music, it's like putting on a play and playing all the parts yourself. Each one has a particular aesthetic. So when I'm playing Buckley, I'm in a particular world and seeing it in my head and responding in that way and creating that picture. I've always played like that. I've always tried to be as an imaginative and, and to create a world and invite people to be part of that world. What Hag does is, is takes it one step further again where I have to be more than just creating a world for the audience. I have to throw things at them as well, almost quite literally. Some of the some of the verbiage said so my father came to the first performance and I was beginning to think, oh, would I say that in front of my dad? You know? <laughs> The other 
composer, you mentioned him earlier, but who's written a piece for you is uh, Fergus Johnson. And he wrote a piece for you in 2018 called Planksty. How closely did you collaborate with, with, with him on this piece? It ended up to be more collaborative than it had intended originally. So my nervous you know, emails sending out in January the year before, would you like to write me? Fergus was the first person to respond. He responded very quickly. First of all, he sent me his adaptation of his flute and guitar piece to get on with. And then he said he'd got this Canaxis software and he had some ideas and would I like to collaborate on something with electronics. And I just bought the Glissander head joint and that gives an extra edge of expression and colour. Mm. We met in Dublin and I played the whole thing and then Fergus took that away and mapped it and sent me the manipulation he'd done. And I have to say I was completely blown away with what he'd done with it and the, the sheer creativity to take someone who's that good a composer when he's just dealing with black dots and one instrument. What he's able to do with electronics is extraordinary. Fergus got me excited about electronics because it didn't come back as sterile. He'd taken a real performance, chopped it up, messed it around and sent it back. And then we figured out how I do that live then with it, with the stopwatch and with cues. So I spoke to Fergus about this work. So let's hear from him now. Something I do is I take people's names and I encode them onto a chromatic scale just to see what comes up. What came up was, I think it was C sharp A, 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 or E, M, M, A. And then bop, 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 bop. C-O-U-L-T-H-A-R-D and the A-R-D was these rising forts at the end and the C-O-U-L-T-H was was this sort of little cluster of things in the middle so I had three little what Stockhausen would call limbs I just took those three limbs and started playing with them and so I did six variations. The theme was like just the first 15 seconds of the piece. Then you got you know, variations, one, two, three, four, five, six, which take you up to the end of the piece. That was just the raw material. Uh, I actually found this key piece of software called Kenaxis, which is like a really handy all-in-one package. And I was going to give you know a, a version of that to Emma or you know run that with Emma doing the thing live and let her operate it using foot pedals. But we met in studio in Dublin. I brought my great big Yamaha pedal board. But actually getting the coordination between you know the flute and the pedal playing and getting everything talking to the computer, we were running out of time and uh, Emma was only over for a short period. I said, never mind, I'll record you playing the piece and I'll do it in the studio at home and then we'll just do it as a taped piece. So I recorded her playing the entire piece and I broke it up at home in the studio into little segments and I put those segments through Kenexus and I created audio files from the manipulated audio of Emma playing the flute as if she was doing it live and then I put that together with the recording I had of Emma's performance and I created, if you like, a studio mock-up of the piece. The audio manipulation in Kenaxis 
It's mostly things like granular synthesis and just creating clouds of sound that uses the, that particular phrase that has just been played is the phrase which is manipulated. And then there's a section which is all, what I think Emma describes it as spiders from Mars, ants from Mars, that's how she described it. That's all the same kind of stuff. It's just sped up and it's really shortened and it uses key clicks and things. I mean, everything that you're hearing in the electronics sounds like manipulated audio of what has just happened, and it is. But then there's one point where the flute and the tape are coming along, and the tape starts behind the flute, but then it catches up and overtakes. And that's not possible because the tape can't possibly know what the flute is going to play. And I don't know if people noticed that, but that was actually me having fun and saying, now let's see if anybody notices this. Nobody has said anything to me about it yet, so I'm now throwing it out into the public domain. And the bit he was referring to um, that I described as ants it was there's a bit with the key clicks and it sounds like ants typing on the surface of Jupiter to me. <laughs> was that your first piece that you had done with with electronics, with, with, with tape or had you worked previously with with uh, I had worked with previously when it was actual tape. <laughs> um, the first thing I did with electronics was with Paul. Um, he did a piece called The Wounds of Art. And then I did some work with Donald Hurley, variations on a theme for Thomas Campion. It literally was a tape, physical, <laughs> reel to reel, I think. <laughs> it's a medium that I'm comfortable with and I quite like it and audiences like it. And of course, if you're a solo flautist, it's a bit boring just listening to someone playing the flute for an hour. You know, even I wouldn't want to do that. And as you said, you, you, you've performed it in Bulgaria and in Japan and in in many times when you're playing a piece a number of times does that change the piece for you the more you play it yes it does you never know how you're going to feel about playing a piece until you play it live in front of an audience and there's no going back I will at my own expense tell a slightly funny story that the last time I played it was a wonderful gig I did in chapter arts it was all going really well quite a difficult concert all the music ready got up to play Fergus's piece and I got to page three and it wasn't page three, it was page five. I had the wrong page up and I improvised an entire page. <laughs> <laughs> I had no choice. If I hadn't performed the piece six times already, I wouldn't have known enough in my head to be able to pull that off. It was one of those moments that you realise how far you've come as a performer, that it didn't faze me. And also mm. I'm very thankful that I've got to work with some of the female composers that weren't around when I when I first started working, but working with people like Anna Mary and Jen Kirby, they've really encouraged me to think about music differently. And and Gorni Mulvey as well, and Siobhan Cleary, who's currently writing for me. They all have a completely different take, and there's a lot more performer input. And that gave me the tools to not react when I had the wrong page up, <laughs> but to, to to not to not feel that it was a, a big problem, which maybe mm. years ago I might have. 
interesting that you know, you you note the uh, the women composers as showing you that sort of different approach. It's very controversial, but it's just occurred to me that they seem less concerned with control. Ooh. <laughs> That's controversial. <laughs> no, I, so just an observation now that all the women composers I've worked with seem to have this approach of letting the performer make a lot of decisions. Um, so Grania was the first of the newer female composers to write for me. And it's a privilege to work with Grania Mulvey. She's, she's terrific. And um, Siobhan, we were in conversations early. And then Anna which is more of an improvisation. But I wouldn't like to say that anything is, is gender-based because it isn't. Women aren't all compliant and accommodating and, and men aren't all control freaks. So. I think it's more, I suppose, the generational thing or the medium in which they work because they work a lot with electronics and work in lots of different ways. They come from a different place. I'd be very reluctant to say it was gender-based. But it's just quite funny to look at it now that all of the collaborations with female composers seem to be very much around a partnership. And just on that, the the idea about you know ongoing collaborations future uh projects and 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 so forth you mentioned that uh siobhan cleary is writing a piece for you what are the kind of projects and ideas that do you have that's going to sustain you into 2021 i'm hoping to do a lot of recording i'm at the early stages yet but i've got a major recording project coming up at john buckley which is a man close to my heart he, he sort of listed out 50 years of writing for flute, more or less. And the fact that a lot of the pieces were written for students of Doris Kyo, which is a nice thing. It's something that John and I have a link together on. So mm. we're in the early stage, early planning stages yet. So there's a, a, a planned as a recording project with John, um, which I think he's he's very important. He's like the, the daddy of the whole thing, really. Um, mm. Paul Hayes wrote me a new piece recently, um, and we're hoping to do that maybe in Sligo or Galway in, in the summer. It's an absolutely amazing piece, really inventive. Um, we've got some performances coming up with Ben that were cancelled. We got PRS Beyond Borders funding for that. And um, when I get to the end of all of that, <laughs> I've got two sort of CD projects I like to do myself. So I'm hoping that it'll be possible for me to get some funding for recording. Because at the moment, although I, I, I want to record John McLaughlin's piece, for instance, um, here at an amazing piece called Isola, Again, there's references to poetry. Really is beautiful. I absolutely love it. I want to get that recorded. Well, Emma, thanks so much for talking about all your different collaborations and different projects and your your really interesting story about how you came back as it were to to new music thank you much Jansen the second movement of John McLaughlin's work for flute and piano Isola performed by Emma Coulthart and David Adams ending this week's podcast For a list of all the music used, please see the show notes for the episode. You'll find these at cmc.ie forward slash amplify. My thanks to Emma Coulthart, 
CMC Director Yvonne Ferguson and Keith Fennell. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, thanks for listening.